0: I'm Stephanie Plante. Welcome to VotePro, the podcast where we take a deep dive into elections happening around the world and in our own backyard. This podcast is supported by CondoVoter, Canada's leading electronic voting platform for condominium elections. Check out their website at www.condovoter.com. This podcast featuring Teresa Reedy was recorded on October 28, 2018. Teresa Reedy teaches at the University College Cork in Cork, Ireland. Her research interests are in the areas of electoral politics and public finance. Teresa is the co-editor of the International Political Science Review, and you can find her on Twitter at at Teresa Reedy. That's at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-R-E-I-D-Y. Let's get the show started. So good afternoon and welcome. Today we are speaking with Professor Teresa Reedy. How are you doing, Teresa?
1: Great, thank you very much for the invitation.
0: Great, and thanks for chatting with us today on our election podcast. Um, Do you wanna just tell us a bit about the university
1: you teach at and what you teach? So I'm based at University College Cork, which is in the south of the island and it's the second largest institution. So we have about 20,000 students and I teach um, Irish politics, but mainly focused on uh, elections and voting behavior
0: perfect perfect and can you give us a bit of background like why were these elect these presidential elections called
1: so our president uh, operates on a fixed term of seven years so these are actually scheduled presidential uh, elections uh, this election is a little bit unusual because in the each um, president is entitled to uh, have a renewal of their term in office and if they seek renewal there is the possibility if somebody stands against them that there would be an election but the practice in the past has, has tended to be that presidents particularly really popular presidents actually have been re-elected unopposed um, and there is a that, that's provided for in, in the constitution so in the past six months we've had a lot of speculation about whether the incumbent would seek a second term. Um, And then if if the incumbent decided to seek a second term, whether or not he would be elected unopposed or whether other candidates might decide to run against him. Um, The incumbent is um, Michael D. Higgins, and he's from our Labour Party. He's really popular. um, And uh, he let it be known earlier in the summer that he was going to seek uh, a second term. And he renominated himself as an independent candidate, all of which is provided for in the Constitution. Uh, And then at that point, there was a, a bit of a... A space where we weren't sure whether there, whether there wouldn't be uh, a presidential election. But the Sinn Féin party uh, decided that it was going to stand a candidate at the election. And then the other political parties had fairly early on indicated that they were very happy with the incumbent and that most of the big parties were actually going to support him in, in the re-election. So they fell in behind the incumbent. But the president is—it's a—it's a ceremonial position. It's important to mm-hmm. to say that mm-hmm. it, uh, it's a little bit unusual for ceremonial presidents in Europe in that it does have direct election. Um, but there are lots of kind of strange intricacies to the election procedure. Um, there are kind of three ways of getting onto the ballot. An incumbent can renominate themselves once. Uh, political parties uh, with seats in parliament—20 members of parliament can nominate a candidate, and that's usually the route the political parties use. And then there's a third route where uh, any four, um, or sorry, you, you, a candidate who gets Nominations from any four city or county councils can also uh, get onto the, the ballot. So we have just over 30 city and county councils around the country. Um, so we had a, a kind of a period of time there in September where we had lots of candidates going around from council to council uh, seeking uh, nominations. And each council can only nominate one candidate. Mm-hmm. So we had four candidates that got onto the ballot in that way. And uh, none of them actually have a political affiliation. One of them was previously associated with Fianna Fáil, which is the kind of one of the uh, traditionally large centre-right political parties that we've had in Ireland. But it's been some time since he was associated with uh, with that party. Uh, And the other three candidates just have no political background at all. Um, so we've, we've kind of ended up with a presidential election. I, I, there was always the possibility that there was going to be a presidential election, uh, but we've ended up with a very strange presidential election because we have a it's a very imbalanced race. We have an incumbent president who's enormously popular running against these five other candidates, none of whom have really made much impact on the uh, on the campaign. Uh, and the opinion polls are telling us that um, Michael D. Higgins, President Michael D. Higgins, is he's touching 70 Wow! Uh, in terms of, uh, and those are pretty extraordinary kind of figures that we we usually don't see coming out of kind of old electoral democracies like Ireland,
0: right? And and can, do you know why he's so popular? Like is he is it just that he's a very popular figure, or he's done a lot of good for the country? Like why do you think he's so well liked?
1: Well, presidents have tended to be pretty popular in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Um, If we go back over the kind of the previous incumbents, um, certainly in the 1990s, kind of since then, we've had quite a lot of opinion polling. And um, Mary Robinson, who's kind of well-known internationally for her work on on climate change and climate justice, she left office on satisfaction ratings of over 90%. Wow. Um, And then the the president after her, Mary (laughs) McAleese, She was also enormously popular uh, and and the current president, Michael D. Higgins, as well. It's a ceremonial position to a great extent. I mean, I suppose there are important constitutional powers um, vested in the president um, and they matter, of course, a great deal when they're invoked, but, but it's relatively, relatively rare. But otherwise, the president has a lot of soft power and does a lot through kind of patronage of charities and kind of advances particular values and attitudes, uh, you know, through their speeches, uh, through their participation in public life. And I mean, the the presidents of late have tended to be, you know, very active and very involved in Irish uh, society. And as a consequence, they they don't have to take usually any difficult decisions Um, and so long as they're visible and active, they tend to be pretty popular. And I think that's very much true of Michael D. Higgins. He's also, you know, he he was a very experienced politician when he um, ran for president. He'd been a former minister for arts and culture um, in, in Ireland. He set up our Irish language television station. Um, he's a pretty colourful character. <laughs> he, he was an academic uh, for a while before he, he went into full time politics. He likes to write poetry, uh, poetry in English and in Irish. Um, you know, he's a pretty serious uh, figure um, in Irish, in Irish political life. But he, he's a liberal uh, and he was always a liberal, even when it was pretty unpopular to be a liberal in Ireland in the 1980s. Uh, And in a strange kind of way, the types of causes and values um, that Michael D. Higgins kind of has supported all his life have have come full circle in Ireland now. So if you look at things like uh, abortion, um, you know, the the clause which caused so much controversy was actually introduced. It was included in the uh, constitution in 1983 in a referendum. And Michael D Higgins actually opposed that back in 1983 and warned that it would be a very dangerous uh, provision. Um, and it's very interesting that in 2018 he was actually the president yeah. that signed into law the repeal of, the, of that clause. Right. So I think his personal popularity kind of comes from um, you know a, a lifetime of uh, of of public uh, public service. I mean, he's not without uh, um, his detractors. I suppose that's uh, important to uh, important to say. Some uh, particularly um, last night in a in a debate somebody called him a pompous poet hmm. um he, he's certainly he's a former academic he likes to talk a lot that's definitely true uh, but he is broadly speaking very popular with the public and and i think the the strong expectations are that he's going to be elected very comfortably um, uh, tomorrow but the concern i guess is that because the race is, is is really so one-sided that turnout could actually be quite low because people don't really feel he needs their vote I see.
0: I see. But this is, if I'm reading correctly, this is not the only uh, election going on tomorrow,
1: correct? You guys are also going to have a referendum? Yes. So we're going to have a referendum on blasphemy tomorrow as well. And again, that's it's a pretty standard practice that we've we've been engaging in for about the last 20 years or so now when when we have referendums, we try to hold them in tandem with other elections if the referendum is on an issue that's, you know, not particularly salient or not particularly um, is not going to garner a lot of public uh, public attention. So what the government likes to do is try and co-schedule it with either local elections or presidential elections to try and, you know, generate some uh, greater turnout and um, at the vote and and that's definitely the case in relation to this blasphemy referendum.
0: Yeah, can you just explain very quickly, because I think we associate referendums with like Switzerland, but I don't think anybody really thinks of Ireland as this sort of referendum hub, this place that has a lot of referendums. How many do you guys have a year approximately?
1: Well, the thing about our referendums is that they're not really scheduled in that Mm -hmm. way. So approximately at this stage, we certainly in the last kind of 20 years, we've been having about one a year to be Mm -hmm. honest. Um, sometimes they, they come in groups uh come in clusters you might get two in a year and, and then none for 18 months um but but the source of our referendums actually lies in the constitution and the constitution was adopted in 1937 and it can only be changed by constitutional referendum and those constitutional referendums are binding the results of which are binding and i suppose you have to explain a little bit that the the constitution when it was adopted was a a relatively conservative, but also a really prescriptive document. So it contained an awful lot of information and detail on how the legal and political systems would operate. Um, It contained a very unusual discussion of of sovereignty, you know, in the context of, um, you know, Northern Ireland, which is is part of the United Kingdom. uh, And that has given rise to lots of referendums. And, And then there was also a lot of kind of Catholic social being imbued in, in the document. And as a consequence, as, as the kind of moral and social values of the electorate no longer reflect that Catholic social teaching, that's necessitated a lot of referendums to kind of strip some of those clauses out to ensure that the, you know, practice of social policy in Ireland is consistent with the current values and attitudes of the voters. Because of the Sovereignty Clause, a ruling happened in the 1980s, which basically said that all international treaties would require a referendum. Mm, okay. uh, so every time there's an EU treaty, we have to have a referendum on it because it, it changes the balance of sovereignty um, prescribed within the Constitution. Uh, and then anytime we want to make changes to uh, our parliamentary, our, our legal structures, that also requires a referendum. And and kind of the, the, the rolling consequence of all of this added <laughs> together is that we're now having a lot more referendums mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than anybody really ever thought we were going to have. But um, we, we remain, though, a representative to democracy. And we're not like Switzerland or a lot of other countries either, because uh, these are constitutional referendums and the only the government can initiate a constitutional referendum. Right. Uh, right. And they take a bill to parliament to change the constitution. And that bill has to be passed in parliament. And then it goes to to the people. So um, there are no citizen initiatives. There is a procedure in the constitution for kind of what we call an ordinary referendum, but that's actually never been triggered and never been used. So um, that, that's that's just the, the process. So th- it's because the document was really so extensive and so prescriptive um, in the 1930s that we're now having to change it uh, that bit more. And there's been a kind of a surge in the last five or seven years, and, and partly that's come out of the economic crisis in Ireland, which mm-hmm. led to a kind of a bit of a political reform movement, and in particular, the government set up, um, the, the government between 2011 and 2016, and then the, the current government elected in 2016 has set up these deliberative fora um, to review different aspects of the of the Constitution. So uh, the first one was the Constitutional Convention, which kind of sat between 2012 and 2014, and that looked at about 10 different issues, most of which were, were constitutional in nature, and made a whole series of recommendations to the government about referendums that should be had to modernise the Constitution. And then there was a Citizens' Assembly set up in 2016, and, and that was primarily focused on abortion. But there are a number of other issues on its agenda as well, and it has made a series of recommendations. And that's all a big, long-winded explanation for why we're now having a blasphemy referendum. Blasphemy was one of those kind of strange things that was included uh, mm. in 1937, um, and which is now completely at odds with, with modern art. I mean, to be honest, it was, there were, there's never been a prosecution of oh, wow. blasphemy in, in the Republic of Ireland. And lots of people have been, you know, doing their research over the last couple of weeks to find out more about blasphemy. And apparently somebody has found a case from about 1855. Um, but <laughs> um, but it's, it's going a long way back to try and find kind of relevance of blasphemy. But but there were a couple of incidents in, in the last decade or so which kind of made the government say, oh look, this is not useful and we really need to get get it out of the Constitution. Um, and the, the Constitutional Convention looked at it um in 2013 and they made this recommendation that it should be it should be removed and the government agreed and they announced a, a referendum. So the referendum is actually taking place now as well tomorrow. Thanks
0: again to our sponsor, Condo Voter. Condo Voter brings electronic voting to the Canadian condominium market combined with an in-depth knowledge and understanding of condominium laws. Electronic voting permits each individual unit owner to vote online using a secure web-based platform. Eliminate the need for proxies, increase owner engagement, and avoid contested results with Condo Voter. Participate, don't delegate. Check out their website at www.condovoter.com. And so if I'm a voter, an Irish voter tomorrow going to the polls, um, can you just maybe walk me through very quickly? What kind of ballot am I getting? Is it uh, what kind of electoral system are we looking at? Is it like a first past the post? Like give us some election geeks here, a bit of a bit of cheese.
1: So, the um, uh, well, great cheese for, for election experts the um, <laughs> presidential election is proportional representation by the single transferable vote. Oof, um, a they're going to love that. That's often <laughs> yeah, beloved of uh, election experts. <laughs> method of counting but I'm afraid that's as far as it goes for the uh, presidential election tomorrow because we think that Michael D. Higgins is going to be elected on the first count Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so all uh, pretty much all elections in Ireland are conducted using PRSTV I suppose to be um, you know technical about it because of the presidential election there only being one one seat or one post available um, it's probably better described as as AV although the constitution actually still calls it PRSTV um, and um, when you go into the polling station tomorrow, um, you will be given two ballots. The first one will be a white ballot paper, which is your presidential election ballot. And then you'll get a green paper, which is your referendum ballot. The white paper will rank the candidates by alphabetical order. It'll have some of their kind of addresses and it'll have photos of each of the candidates. Um mm. uh, on it and uh, you rank order the candidates in order of your preference one until six really interestingly tomorrow no candidate will have a party political affiliation Uh, and that's really that's the first presidential elections in ireland the incumbent is of the labour party but he he resigned from the labour party and that's not unusual um you know when he became president um it's seen as a kind of an apolitical office and he has renominated himself as an independent although he is of the labour party family um, the Sinn Féin candidate has has argued that she's, uh, you know, that the presidency is not party political, so she's not including um, a party political affiliation, and then that the remaining candidates are independents or non-party, so there won't be any party political information. So uh, voters will rank order the candidates uh, one to six and uh, the count will take place on Saturday morning. We count the day after. Uh, Basically, we expect it all to be over after the first count, because we believe Michael D. Higgins will probably get somewhere in the region 60 percent of the uh, of the vote, which will carry him over the quota. Um, very quickly. Uh, at previous elections, uh, presidential elections, there would have been multiple rounds of, of voting because no candidate would usually reach the quota on the uh, on the first round um, in, in more recent elections. Early elections back in the kind of 40s and 50s there tended only to be one candidate so it was kind of more straightforward back then as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The uh, referendum ballot though is a much much messier uh, thing altogether. Um, so that's a yes/no vote, but um, for for kind of maximum confusion uh, and to really make life as as difficult as possible for the voters, the referendum act actually sets down the structure of the ballot paper, um, and it, it requires that the bill that passed through Parliament to trigger the referendum is actually mentioned. Mm-hmm. So the the I have the exact wording here in front of me. So the ballot paper will ask you do you approve of the proposal to amend the constitution contained in the undermentioned bill and the bill then in box below is 37th amendment of the constitution in brackets, repeal of offense of publication or utterance of blasphemous matter, close bracket bill 2018. (laughs) And all of this, by the way, appears in, in Irish language as well. And then there is, if you approve, you tick the box yes. Uh, if you do not approve, you tick the box no. So I think it would be actually difficult to design a ballot paper that was more awkward mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for, for voters. I suppose the only thing is that there have been campaigns running all all week trying to advise people about you know what the ballot paper will look like and how how they should vote depending on their 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 preferences. But um, there's been a good deal of criticism over the last number of decades about the way in which the ballot um, is expressed um, that it doesn't it it doesn't make things very clear for uh, voters, but um, I suppose we we have been having a lot of referendums, so so voters are a little bit more used to them. The the referendum is a straightforward vote, you know, majority, simple majority wins. There are no turnout requirements or anything of that nature so there's no super majority or or anything um so it's whatever percentage of people turns out to vote 50 plus percent plus one gets you a victory in the uh, in the referendum uh, and quite possibly because of the way the the ballot or the the presidential election is going something similar will work there
0: right right and that's very interesting um but I have a question will will Irish citizens living
1: abroad also get a chance to vote in this election No so that's a pretty controversial one here over the last number of years um there there is no process for uh, facilitating irish citizens living abroad there's there's one slight exemption to that which is um civil servants and and members of the defense forces who are abroad are facilitated um you know uh, in their their voting ambassadors and staff at embassies are all are all facilitated by uh, a postal vote but other citizens living abroad which in the case of ireland is a very large mm-hmm. percentage people, um, especially because we've had a recent outward wave of immigration after the financial crisis in 2008. There is no entitlement for those citizens to, to vote. Now, the electoral law is a bit vague in the sense that it says that if you are planning to return to Ireland within 18 months, you can continue to remain on the electoral register. Mm -hmm. And that loophole has actually been used by a lot of people um, at two recent referendums, the marriage referendum, um, which introduced same-sex marriage, and also the abortion referendum, which uh, significantly liberalised abortion provision in Ireland. And large numbers of Irish citizens living abroad, particularly young Irish people living abroad, returned to Ireland, so they flew home to vote in those referendums. If they were planning to return to Ireland within 18 months of their original departure, then they were actually voting legally. Uh, if not, they were casting illegal ballots. And and that's mm. a little bit controversial because um, I think the general view is is that we should campaign to have that rule changed so that, you know, legal provision is made uh, for citizens returning home to, to vote. But there is a grave suspicion that there were a lot of people who voted um, at recent referendums who, who weren't entitled to mm-hmm. strict Mm. Well, and anything that brings, you know, anything that brings the electoral laws into disrepute like that <laughs> is not a good idea. So it, it is certainly being looked at by the government. And I mean, it's a relatively new phenomenon as well, because, you know, prior to that, I suppose, the referendums weren't all that interesting or all that controversial, <laughs> mobilized people in, in quite the same way. And if we go back to some of the more controversial ones in the 1980s, airfares, you know, weren't that cheap. So you right. couldn't fly from Belgium or from, you know, from the UK for less than 100 euros, which you can which you can now. So the actual cost maybe of of exercising your vote is a lot less now than it was before. So it's a relatively new phenomenon, but it is on the agenda of the um, uh, of the government. And actually, the those deliberative fora that I talked about at the start, one of the things that they looked at, actually the Constitutional Convention looked at in 2013, was whether all Irish citizens living abroad should be entitled to vote at presidential elections. And, and that was actually endorsed by the convention. And the government is looking to hold a referendum on that. But it, it will require some kind of considerable discussion about how that would be operationalized because Irish citizens living abroad, you know, there are lots of categories of Irish citizens mm-hmm. living abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have people who live in Northern Ireland. So technically quite a number of those are Irish citizens, but they're living in the UK, but they're not really abroad. I mean, in the sense that they are, they're in a different country, but they're on the same island. Uh, and they 're you know watching the same television and reading the same newspapers and probably following politics in the Republic reasonably closely mm-hmm. so you 'd have to expect those are citizens that would be reasonably engaged with electoral politics here. Then you have citizens who have left. Ireland, either in the last decade or before that, who have retained their Irish citizenship, you know, and, and remain are, are living somewhere else, but probably pretty permanently located somewhere else. And then you have this kind of wider group that we often refer to as the diaspora, but the diaspora means everybody, I suppose, um, in in the technical sense, but but in, in when it's using kind of parlance in, in, in the Republic, we're usually talking about people who are of Irish extraction living in different parts of the world. So we're talking about, you know, the large community in the United Kingdom and the United States, Canada, Canada, Australia that are, are of Irish origin. And we have pretty loose citizenship laws here. You can claim Irish citizenship if you have an Irish grandmother, an mm. Irish born grandmother. So there are large numbers of people around the world who could be enfranchised and and have an entitlement to vote. Now, don't get us wrong, there isn't any great expectation that millions of people are going to want to suddenly (laughs) take voting rights at Irish elections. It's much more likely that, um, you know, it'll be difficult to actually get people uh, to register, to to vote. Um, But nevertheless, you know, there's some complications and those have to be worked through and positions have to be developed. And also procedures for how you would do the voter registration, how you would organize the voting afterwards. Um, So we expect that there'll be some movement on that possibly next year. And, and, And again, because the constitution is so prescriptive, that will also require a referendum to actually bring that into law. Oh, my God. I'm so coming to Ireland when you have that
0: referendum. That's just because I just am completely fascinated by, uh, as you probably know, out of country voting. So, uh, yeah, just expect me to camp out somewhere when you guys do have that referendum. So
1: that could be a a reasonably controversial referendum. So that one could be worth coming to see because it's not that straightforward because of the complexities of the Irish diaspora abroad. Mm-hmm. There's a degree of uncertainty, which I think is quite common in countries that have had this debate before us about how far it is a good idea to, to kind of introduce this provision. So it'll be an exciting one and an interesting one to be here for. The one we're having tomorrow, on the other hand, has been monumentally dull. I think it probably <laughs> is close to the... Uh, uh, winning the award for the least talked about referendum. There'd be one or two others in that category, but it, it's, it's been very, very dull blasphemy. There, there's there's really nobody, nobody has any strong argument for, um, for keeping it in the Constitution. I think the best case that's been made is it's expensive to have referendums. Um, but at the same time, the people who want to take it out aren't that pushed either. And, and there's been very little campaign effort um which is i think again going to contribute to the low turnout tomorrow people are not that pushed you know we've had referendum turnouts well into the 60s high 60s Hmm. um at, at recent referendums but those were on issues that actually affect people's lives you know with concrete and effects on, on on people's lives, you know marriage rights, abortion rights, you know though they affect citizens. Blasphemy is in the Constitution. it's never been prosecuted and um, it really has no effect and this is just a kind of a, a housekeeping tidying up uh, referendum and that's the view that everybody's taking of it as well. They treat it like kind of doing the vacuum cleaning. nobody's really all that <laughs> interested uh, you know in, 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 in dealing with it. Um, Wow. Well,
0: thank you so much for those those explanations. That was really interesting. Um, So I just I wanted to maybe shift gears slightly a little bit because we had a presentation here at SIPs last year by our Irish ambassador on the the idea of Brexit. And um, he was very straightforward in the sense that he was very disappointed in The results of Brexit, he didn't really go too much into details, obviously, with his job. He can't do that. But I was just wondering, from where you sit at the university, do people talk about Brexit? Does it affect the students at all? Or are you guys just kind of over that already?
1: Yeah, Brexit is is a really... Big political issue. I don't think the students are, are that pushed um, about it, but I think politically, um, and certainly at kind of management levels within the university, um, we are very concerned about the way in which um, the Brexit deal might impact mm-hmm. on, on Ireland um, in, in, into the future. So you know, I mean, there are different ways in, in which it, it affects the Republic of, of Ireland. You know, first and foremost, we, Ireland, the Republic is pretty pro-European. I mean, we have some of the highest support levels for membership of the European Union. So in that sense of the word, even though we joined the European Union in 1973 with Denmark and the United Kingdom, we have actually singularly remained very, uh, you know, pro-European um, and we have the euro and have generally adopted most of the kind of um, reforms and, and changes that have been brought in by the by the european union um so that kind of sets us apart from the uk but there, there are kind of two critical problems. One is that the UK is one of our closest trading partners and always has been for kind of long established historical reasons. You know, Irish economic dependence on the UK has mm-hmm. changed a lot. Certainly we're, you know, trading much more diversely with the rest of the world now. But the UK is still a significant partner, um, you know, and there is kind of economic consequences of their departure from the European Union. So questions about what regulations will will now have to be applied and what costs are associated with those in East-West trade. So that's that's one. I think that one is probably manageable in and of itself, because the same kinds of principles and problems will apply to British trade with their other trading partners like Germany and France, all of whom have have also got very high levels of trade with the with the UK. But the government is is trying to deal with that level of, of East West disruption. Um, As well. Uh, But the main issue for the Republic of Ireland relates to the border in Northern Ireland Mm -hmm. Um, and effectively the UK border with the European Union is now actually going to be on the island of Ireland. And Mm. that is very, uh, you know, that's a very difficult situation because Northern Ireland had an ethnic civil war for 35 years with three and a half thousand people dying. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that was that conflict was resolved to an extent by the Good Friday Agreement, or sometimes known also as the Belfast Agreement in 1998. And as as part of that agreement, um, you know, th- there was a degree of ambiguity built into that uh, agreement, one part of which was actually reducing the the extent of the border and the difference between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So a lot of the armaments and military installations and posts that were located along the border all during the Civil War uh, in Northern Ireland were, were slowly stripped away in the years after the um, uh, the Belfast Agreement in 1998. So much so now that there is a completely open and free border uh, between the Republic and Northern Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a very important part of the kind of settlement of that conflict. And there's a great deal of concern that uh, as the UK leaves the European Union, there will now be a need to restore some forms of border, um, you know, border structures or border systems a- along that area. Um, and, and that will that will increase or inflate tensions on the island, and you know there is there is a a, a long and, and and difficult history in that part of the island, and um, the there's also I mean just to kind of break it down into very practical terms, you know there's a lot of people who who live on that border and cross over and back many times in a single day. So how border structures will be operated to facilitate people living in that part of the island um, is very unclear. And there's a lot of discussion about technological solutions that will allow goods back and forth and citizens back and forth. Free movement of people is is not so much of an issue, but, but Immigration was a big part of the Brexit debate and, and controlling borders and controlling the people coming in and out of the country. So that means on one hand, the British government is, is trying to ensure security along its its borders and ensure security in relation to people coming in and out. But at the same time, it's made commitments to ensure that none of its actions are going to erode the uh, Good Friday Agreement uh, or, or kind of contribute to... Tensions in that part of the in in that part of the island. So it's a very difficult situation, and it's become one of the main stumbling blocks in the negotiations uh, on on the kind of British withdrawal agreement from the European Union. So the European twenty seven kind of what's left in the European Union have taken a very strong line um, and and included the border situation in Northern Ireland as as one of their kind of core uh, principles, uh, and they're not willing to any agree any withdrawal agreement that actually would require border um, machinery on, on 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 the island and uh, particularly on the the UK kind of frontier with the EU uh, on the island of Ireland
0: wow fast wow see we don't hear that kind of stuff over here that's so fascinating oh my we hear more sort of you know, a much different narrative about, say, like students who will their Erasmus will get taken away or, you know, we hear it on a much different level. So that was really interesting. Thank you so much, Teresa. Wow. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't have any more questions. Did you want to make any predictions for tomorrow? I think you made yourself pretty clear. But uh, I think uh, I think what we can agree that we think the the president will get reelected and the referendum will pass. Is that what I'm sort of getting from this conversation? I think it will be a major shock if those two
1: things <laughs> don't happen. I think we'll we'll probably have to significantly return to how we uh, do our opinion polling <laughs> if, those things, uh, if those things don't don't come through. The the only kind of caveat to put in the air is that we don't know what turnout is going to be. Um, right. and that will, will significantly um affect uh, the outcome, particularly the referendum outcome, because um kind of in, in the past, um there there, there tends to be a kind of a set percentage of people who vote no to things and a kind of set percentage of vote yes. And the middle ground has always tended to be soft yes. So the more of the middle ground that come out, the higher the yes vote goes up. So it was very interesting in marriage and abortion. And certainly we've seen it as well at several EU referendums that as as turnout kind of goes above kind of 55 towards 60 and 65%, actually the percentage yes vote increases. Um, So tomorrow... If the turnout is is quite low, that that could have consequences in terms of the yes vote. It, it could be smaller uh, than we might expect on a vote like blasphemy. And, and that's not going to be any kind of great sign of reserve, reversal of the kind of secularizing or liberalizing trend in Ireland. It's just going to be a function of voters not being all that pushed.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, we have one last question if you have time. And uh, we ask this for all the people who appear on our uh, election podcast, which is... If you could sort of wave a magic wand and change anything you want about the election system in Ireland, what would you do?
1: I'd establish a permanent electoral commission. Ooh, I've heard you talk so, yeah. about this before. Yeah, go ahead. I'll let you explain. Yeah, it's very, very we're very impressed with Elections Canada, so we probably wouldn't <laughs> get a model quite as extensive as that. But definitely something along those uh, those lines, because election administration in Ireland is is a little bit outdated. Uh, you know, Ireland, like Canada, is a pretty old um, electoral democracy. We've had free and fair elections for kind of more than a hundred years, but we're also a little bit casual about those elections. So we we haven't put a lot of attention into kind of updating our practices and procedures, things like the rather strange way we designed the referendum ballot. So I think a a referendum commission that was kind of empowered to take action in a couple of areas. We're not talking about making big changes, but little small tweaks I think in a couple of uh, spaces could actually really improve the um, system for all voters.
0: And I nominate you to lead that commission. So I'm just going to put that out there. So
1: <laughs> I think we'll have a high court judge doing it. But nevertheless, we'll have lots of things to advise them.
0: Got it. Got it. Well, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast, Teresa. And uh, good luck tomorrow. I know I know what you say it's going to be a bit of a boring day, but I'm sure it's going to be a long day. So uh, wishing you all the best. And we're going to keep our eye on the results for tomorrow. Very good. Come here. It was lovely to talk to you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. To see the show notes for the podcast, go to condovoter.com. For questions or ideas, or to get in touch with me, you can reach me at, at special ballot. That's S-P-E-C-I-A-L-B-A-L-L-O-T on Twitter. Until next time, I'm Stephanie Plant.